Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as Pastor Lorenzo just mentioned, uh, we're continuing studying the Gospel of Mark because as Christians, we believe that what we find within this book is the rule of our faith. It is um, this library of books that allows us to have a objective stance on who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. That, uh, that this is not open for um, everybody to kind of situate where they want, whether that's in the South uh, or out here on the West, but rather that we have a particular rule of faith as it's referred to. And it is the word of God. It is the, the teachings of Jesus, the letters of the early church and the story of Israel as found in the Old Testament. This is the book by which we look out into the world and say yes or no to say this is Christian or this is not, or this is some abomination of the thing. And so Mark 14 is where we're gonna to be today as we continue in our Enthroning Jesus series. We're gonna be beginning in verse 32. So let's dive right in and let's jump into the story in Gethsemane. It says, and they went, being Jesus and his disciples after their Passover dinner, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell onto the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. When he came and found them sleeping, he said to Peter, Simon, are you still asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed saying those same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. He came then a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the 12 and with him, this crowd of swords and clubs, all from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now Judas, the betrayer, had given them a sign saying, the one that I will kiss is the man. Seize him, arrest him, lead him away under guard. And when Judas came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by, John's gospel tells us it's Peter himself, drew a sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out against as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me day after day over this past week, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did nothing to seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they, the disciples all left Jesus and fled. And one young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, God, looking over this past week, we are once again reminded 
of the deep need for a church that is committed to the ways of Jesus. One that is committed to your kingdom and your will. One that enters into the way of self-sacrifice as opposed to sacrificing others. And so our prayer is that now, as we look at this story, we might once again reflect on who Jesus is and what it means to truly follow him. May you guide us in that we pray, amen. Well, 53 weeks ago, you may have remembered if you've been with us over these past 53 weeks, we looked at this exact same passage in our teaching series on silence and solitude. A year ago, we were right here in this passage. And, and, and this teaching on uh, Mark um, 14, would end up being the very first sermon in a year's worth now of me sitting in front of a camera and teaching. Over that, that sermon, over our time looking at this text, we, we looked at how this is hours before Jesus's cross here in this garden of Gethsemane. And we talked about how uh, Mark has intricately woven together these parallel ways of telling the story that uh, Gethsemane, the name of this garden that means oil or olive press, where these olives would be pressed and oil would then come out. That in some way, the Garden of Gethsemane is this pressing place, not of olives and oils, but of Jesus and the disciples. That as they are pressed, we find these things drawn out of Jesus and the disciples, revealed that they maybe have been there and consistent along the way. And as I sat there recording at my table, I mean, I was unaware of the oncoming year, this Gethsemane year, as we might call it. At that point, lockdown was a conversation that was going to be maybe a few weeks. And here we are a year later. On the other side, or maybe still in the midst of our kind of get 70 year, this pressing year where like olives being pressed and oil being drawn out, this year has pressed us under this enormous weight of life in kind of 2020, 21, that now is revealed and pressed out so many things that were within us now brought out. Like the disciples here in Mark 14, there's a number of varying responses that you've likely seen within yourself pressed out of us over this pressing Gethsemane year. Some of us like Judas here abandoned Jesus like we talked about two weeks ago, this sacrificing of Jesus for something else. Or at the same time, there may be some of us like Peter who don't simply abandon Jesus, but abandon the ways of Jesus which is a way of abandoning Jesus, trying to bring about and fight for his kingdom in a way that's antithetical to the gospel. Uh, as a little side sermon, some of you might've seen a little Instagram live that I did looking at Peter as we contemplated what we saw this past week in Atlanta in the way of Jesus. Might be worth going back if you haven't seen that yet. It's on my Instagram. I feel so weird saying that, I hate that. Um, but nonetheless, it's there. So some of us like Judas betray Jesus. Like Peter, we betray the ways of Jesus, which is betraying Jesus. And then like the disciples in the story, others of us, we flee in fear. We abandon Jesus. We run for the hills. The vulnerability of the pressing moment causes us to feel afraid and we run for the hills. Some of us are lucky, unlike that anonymous disciple, to still have our clothes on our back. The stress of Gethsemane pressed the disciples the coming moment of his cross and then Jesus' arrest presses Jesus in the disciples and what gets pressed out of the disciples and revealed is their failure. As you look back over this past pressing year, where do you see yourself here? Whether you identify as a Christian or not, what has this year pressed and revealed out of you? 
What have been those avenues of seeking comfort and control? Those avenues of what have you done in the midst of your vulnerability? What have you done with your allegiance? If you do identify as a Christian to Christ, have you like Judas either been tempted in big ways or small to abandon him in pursuit of something else? Some of us like Peter, tired of waiting around for Jesus to show up and and drive things through the way that we want. We pick up our sword as it were. We try to take control of the situation. Where has this year pressed out of you? In contrast to the disciples' failure, what we find within this passage here in the Gethsemane moment is Jesus is not a failure, but he is faithful. He is honed in on God's unfolding story in the midst of the weight of the pressing. As he says towards the end of the passage in verse 49, let all of this come, why? So that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He is honed in on his mission and vision. And so what separated the disciples' failure and Jesus' faithfulness? So we've talked about in the past, in this moment, this is not that Jesus is some kind of T-800 robo-Christ who is incapable of emotions and kind of on like an obedience program, marching his way through life. We find within the the text itself doesn't let us think this, that because Jesus is fully God, it means he does not go to the depths of the human experience. He is, as it says, greatly distressed. He is troubled. He says sorrowful, even to the point of death in verses 33 and 34. He is experiencing similar emotions to the disciples. And I would even argue more than the emotions. He, because he's more connected to the story that's unfolding, that his terror and his fear, his anxiety is even higher than the disciples. And yet there is the opposite response between the two of failure and faithfulness. What is the difference between sword swinging and streakers and Jesus fulfilling the scriptures? We found it at the beginning that while the disciples were sleeping, Jesus was praying. Now at risk of over-spiritualizing the text, there is a reality in being fallen asleep, of sleepwalking through our lives. That is how many of us have walked over the coming year. A sort of falling asleep out of some kind of a pursuit or desire to stay within what we could call the comfort zone. Mark Sayers in a recent interview kind of podcast, he's a a pastor in Australia, talked about the pursuit of the comfort zone that controls us in the midst of moments of crises. And the pursuit of the comfort zone for many of us so often is rooted in two things, entitlement and fear. A desire for the comfort zone is rooted in entitlement and fear. And the entitlement being that this is not how it's supposed to go, that I deserve or I, I need or I earned better than this. And a fear of, I don't know what's going to happen. And so when led astray by our entitlement and our fear, we pursue the comfort zone. We try to fall asleep as it were, to rest our eyes in the midst of the pressing. And as Sayers says that the comfort zone and the pursuit of it is in fact a highway to the danger zone. (laughs) That our pursuit of comfort in the midst of those pressing moments, that that, that does not provide us with a safety in the year to come, but actually sets us up for danger. So if your pursuit over this past year has been for comfort or control, that pressing ultimately will reveal abandonment as we see within the disciples. 
Now, Jesus, what we find in him is that through prayer, he does not pursue comfort or control, but again, what Mark Sayers refers to as the obedience zone, the union of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit coming together in that moment. It is profound that in the hours going to the cross, that Jesus does not host a theology lecture about trusting the will of God and what that looks like. He doesn't give a sermon. He does not host a worship set where Peter gets up with the guitar and they've got Judas on that. Well, Judas is with the other guys, but somebody else is on the cajon. Jesus doesn't give a theology lecture, a sermon, a worship set. He doesn't gather everybody around for a mindfulness session. He does not say, let's go for a run and just get our blood pumping and get some exercise. That's known to lower these. He doesn't go for a camping trip. All of these things are great and good. But for Jesus, when he enters into the pressing moment, his Gethsemane, with all of the fear and terror and anxiety surrounding him, the one thing he says yes to is prayer. We find in the example of Jesus here, contrasting the failure of the disciples, is that prayer is essential. It is the foundation of a faithful life. In many ways, as you look over your life, and you look over mine, you look over the faithfulness of a church, of a community, everything rises and falls on prayer. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, in a letter to a cobbler who asked the question of how to pray, and Luther wrote a letter back, he responded at one point saying, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Again, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Pastor John Anwuchekwa, in his book on prayer, he then adapts Luther's uh, uh, quote to then say it this bluntly, prayerlessness is spiritual suicide. If prayer is likened to our breathing in and breathing out of breathing in communion with the father through the work of the spirit and breathing out our petitions and that this is what sustains the life of faithfulness, then to go without prayer is spiritual suffocation. And the failure of the disciples later in Gethsemane of sword swinging and streaking was the natural suffocation of those who had been falling asleep when they ought to have been praying, those who were holding their breath when they should have been breathing. Growing up, I loved swimming. There was something about the experience of being underwater, you know, and I was the the nerdy kid with like the big goggles and, and I just, I loved being underwater, light refracting the muted sounds and just being weightless. It was, I I loved being underwater to this day, even as like when we go to like a vacation with a pool, like I always end up getting goggles and like, I just, I just love being underwater. I'm totally, it's a big nerd moment right here that I'm sharing with you. I love staying underwater, but what would happen so often, regular, I mean, almost like every single time we went to the pool is I would get home and and over the course of that afternoon and leading into the evening, I would get the worst headaches. Keep me up at night, throwing up headaches. And it took so long to figure out that that what was happening was as I was going down into the, the waters that I love to swim in, I was coming up and I would take quick, kind of shallow breaths and go back down. And I was holding my breath for longer than my lungs and my blood was made to do. 
And, and the result of that was after doing that for an afternoon, coming home, would, that lack of oxygen in my blood system was making me sick. I say all this to say, there are some of us that the lack of prayer, that maybe we're not suffocating, but we feel spiritually sick. We feel in a haze and unable to contribute and be a part of the work and the story that's unfolding in our midst of the kingdom of God. And it's because we've been taking shallow breaths of prayer as opposed to the deep receptivity that we see Jesus displaying here. And some of us, our little shallow breaths are because we would rather keep diving into the waters of the pursuit of the comfort zone, looking for comfort or control. And to come up and take a deep breath of prayer is to quit pursuing comfort and control. And so we take little breaths and then we keep pursuing. The opposite we find here is that Jesus through prayer breathes deep, and exhales petitions. He breathes deep of the spirit, communion with the father and exhales his petitions. And in doing though then is able to dive deep into the cross and the hours overhead of his arrest and his betrayal, his death. So deeply hardwired and linked within his connection to the father, not pursuing the comfort zone, but again, the obedience zone, his vision for the kingdom. And so for sick and sleepy disciples after this past year, like you and me, what may we glean from Jesus's prayer? The deep breath, these three deep breaths, it tells us that he makes in Gethsemane. Now there is a powerful dynamic here in Mark 14 that many of us often read over. Now this next few moments may feel a little nerdy, but I promise you there is payoff once we see what I believe, and, and this is not just a Ryan thing, this is many different authors and scholars throughout time that Jesus is getting at here. And so here's the hypothesis, is when we look at the Gethsemane and Jesus's prayer here, Jesus is praying and meditating on and repeating and rephrasing his own prayer, the Lord's prayer. So for those of you that know the Lord's prayer, just to once again say it here, you know, Jesus, when asked by his disciples, how should we pray? He tells them, when you pray, pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So there's the Lord's prayer. And so many have pointed out over time that when you set the Lord's prayer alongside Jesus's Gethsemane prayer, you see all of these little connections that are just worth kind of meditating on. So you might see a slide right now that kind of highlights this a little bit more. And so in Gethsemane, Jesus opens his prayer with Abba Father. In the Lord's prayer, it opens with our Father. And so here in Gethsemane, Jesus is turning up the emotional intensity, the intimacy moving from our father to Abba, this language of Papa or daddy. But both begin with a declaration of God as father. Then they move into Gethsemane. All things are possible for you, the Lord's prayer in heaven. Some of you say those are two opposite things. No, 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 Ryan says, these are far closer than you think. In the Jewish worldview, to say that God is in heaven is as much about power of God as the place of God. In the same way that I said the man in the White House, I'd be saying far less about his physical address and more about the power available to him. Similarly, in Psalm 115, that uh, it says that, that God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. That God is in heaven 
all things are possible through him. If you jump down, you'll find Jesus's prayer of yet, not what I will, but your will be done is literally the same phrase in the Greek of the Lord's prayer, your will be done. And then of course, Jesus, though not praying, comes to his disciples and say, pray that you may not enter temptation. And what do we have? Lead us not into temptation. So as we come back, what we find here is the Lord's prayer in Gethsemane is in some sense, the Lord's prayer repeated three times, Mark lays out for us and rephrased in his pressing moment. This is the deep breath that Jesus draws. And it is not some spiritual prayer, or even just him kind of riffing. It is him pulling from the Lord's prayer, at least in these four connections. But then this may lead us to ask, okay, so well, what about Jesus praying for, you know, would you remove this cup where in the Lord's prayer we would expect May your name be honored. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. How do these connect here? Well, if you've been with us through the gospel of Mark, we just have to take a moment and step back. How does Jesus believe that God's name will ultimately be honored, that the kingdom is decisively going to come and heaven and earth are going to cross over? Mark 10, through drinking the cup, this metaphor and symbol for him going to his cross, to his death. Matthew 26, in his version of uh, the Gethsemane moment, has Jesus praying it this way, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink the cup. It's asked many to ask, what is the this that Jesus is praying about? The this that this may happen. If we're reading it through the Lord's prayer, he's saying, my father, if your name cannot be honored, your kingdom cannot come and heaven and earth cannot be united unless I drink this cup, then nevertheless, your will be done. And so Jesus here is wrestling through as the king, what is the cost of God's name being honored, his kingdom coming, heaven and earth uniting, the cost of these things and the price of the cross, all as he moves into the statement of surrender, your will be done. Once again, this is our enthroning Jesus series, that this is all coming together, that in some way, the cross, the cup, his death is the moment when his kingdom comes. It is the decisive moment when the king is enthroned. Now, some of it, we see the connection here, but we've also got three other little petitions there in the Lord's prayer that are missing from Jesus's. And so once again, we're just meditating. We're just kind of, you know, this is, we're going drinking a, a, a cup of coffee and just thinking about this. Is the three missing prayers from Gethsemane are the prayer for, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation. Uh, but, excuse me, but deliver us the deliverance from evil prayer. So where is the prayer for bread, forgiveness, and deliverance from evil? Well, first, it's just worth noting that the prayer for giving us this day our daily bread, uh, literally in, in the Greek that the authors were writing in is, is literally give us tomorrow's bread today. And so in trying to translate like what in the world that means that most often English translations have leaned into something like give us this day our daily bread, a prayer for our daily sustenance. When we focus on it and think about what it meant to pray for tomorrow's bread within the Jewish thought, within the day of Jesus's living and what he meant by this, then more likely that what he's praying for, yes, in some sense is our physical sustenance, but he's linking it to tomorrow, the capital T tomorrow, like the eternal tomorrow, <laughs> new heavens and new earth, the restored world. 
that in some sense to pray for our daily bread, to pray for tomorrow's bread today is, is would you satisfy us today with the satisfaction and sustenance of your future kingdom? And so if we just think about what this prayer would mean and what we just looked at last week with Jesus at the Passover meal, where he held up the Passover bread that not only pointed back to the unleavened bread from Passover, but pointed forward to the bread of the new kingdom is that when Jesus doesn't pray for bread, might it be because he sees himself as the answer to that prayer. Similarly, the absence of praying for forgiveness and deliverance. Where is our our prayer of, of forgive us our debts and deliver us from evil? Where are those prayers most ultimately and decisively answered? In the cross of Jesus, where he's going within the next few hours. You might consider that those prayers are missing because Jesus knows that he and his cross are the answer to them. Now, this may be profound and cool for maybe not all of you, but at least for me. But, but what this draws out is we see a pattern for Jesus here in how he prays. At some level, the Lord's prayer was critical and vital, the repeated, meditated on and rephrased use of that prayer. But more than that, as Jesus is praying through the Lord's prayer, he's praying for himself and what he's going into. In some sense, who is he praying for? This whole vision of kingdom coming, God's name being hallowed, forgiveness of sins, delivered from evil, being led not into temptation. He's praying all this and in some sense, yes, for himself, but even more to the point, as he goes to his cross, who's he praying for? His snoring disciples, just a few feet away, his disciples that couldn't keep their eyes open for just a few hours to pray with him. These are who Jesus sees the cup, the cross before him. And wrestling through its cost, he sees the price that that it's going to, and he, he says, yet not what I will, but your will be done. And he doesn't do this for superhero disciples, but snoring ones. He drinks the cup for failed, like I've been saying, sword swingers and streakers. Some of you, this is how you feel over the past year. You feel defeated. You fell asleep. You feel like it's a miracle that you've still got clothes on your back and how you have run seeking after comfort. Or you've, you're standing there like Peter with a bloody sword in your hand and you, because you've been trying to take control over this past year and it's left you feeling like nothing but a failed disciple in Jesus's eyes. There is good news for sleepy disciples here in Jesus's prayer that Jesus was praying for his sleepy failed disciples, praying to the uttermost for their redemption and salvation, for their forgiveness, even as they were royally blowing it. And not just them, but for us today. Because we know the way that the story is going is that Jesus is gonna be resurrected and then ascended to the right hand of the father. Have you ever wondered what Jesus has been doing over the past 2000 years? Like what is Jesus doing on a Sunday morning? or a Tuesday afternoon, or Thursday night. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus, since his ascension to the right hand of the Father, that over these past 2,000 plus years, he has been interceding, praying for us, that he now lives to make intercession for us, it says. So you're gonna wonder what Jesus is doing right now, that he is still in some sense on the other side of that Gethsemane moment, now in the presence of the father, still praying for his sleepy disciples. 
And, and, and I, you know, it's not a stretch to assume that if Jesus, it seems love to meditate on and repeat the Lord's prayer, I don't think it's a stretch for us to assume that Jesus in some sense has been praying the Lord's prayer over these past 2000 years and over this past year for you and for me. So as we look over this, you know, Bible nerdy a little bit, but we see this pattern of Jesus's use of the Lord's prayer. And we also find the promise of Jesus's prayer that an invitation back to prayer after a year of dropping the ball and you feel sick or suffocated and your life, your prayer life is on life support or it's a cadaver, wherever you're at along the scale, that there is not just a pattern for us to develop, but a promise in Jesus's prayer here that the invitation back to prayer is an invitation to join a conversation that Jesus is already having with the father about you. And he just wants to invite you to sit at the table and have the conversation with them. And more than just an invitation to join the table, that to enter back into prayer is to begin breathing again. And as we see through Jesus is to receive what we could call the intercessory CPR of the Lord, who has pulled us out from our sleepy and drowned state and is breathing his life back into us through his own prayers over us. And for us to begin breathing again is what it means for us to pray. And so, as we kind of begin to land the plane, moving into our lives in the week ahead and in the months ahead, I believe that what we find here in Gethsemane is one more reason why I think we really need to take seriously the fact that when Jesus's disciples asked, hey, how do we pray? He gave them the Lord's prayer. Teach us how to pray. And he said, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He has given us the Lord's prayer as a pattern to repeat. And even as we see in Gethsemane, rephrase into our own days, even and especially on our darkest ones. For some of you, setting this out may feel like, you know, entering into kind of a legalism or empty religiosity or empty, you know, recitation. Maybe coming out of a tradition where off the cuff, more kind of emotional, extemporaneous is the fancy word. Prayers are actually the most genuine ones, the most legitimate prayers. And I'm not here to go against extemporaneous, like those that we, we, we pray those. We, I just prayed one of those before our gathering. But the reality is, is that when we are led by our own off the cuff, driven by our perception, what, what this leads to is us so often, uh, we're led by when we want to pray and when we know what to pray and what we know how to pray. And then what so often happens is that it just leads to us not praying at all or very, very rarely. And this is why the main form of prayer throughout church history was meditating on and rephrasing the Lord's prayer the Psalms and other prayers found within the scriptures. This was the bread and butter of prayer for the early church, for the church throughout most of history. And so though we receive like the glory of, of like leaning into extemporaneous prayers, they're awesome. There is something that we may be missing. If you go back and um, read one of my favorite little like non-biblical, but written around the time of the scriptures, there's this little book called the Didache, which means the teaching. And it was this handbook for churches that was written within the lifetime of the gospel of Mark and the the disciples in the early church. It was a handbook for early churches. So it talks about all these different components of um, expectations for pastors and prayer and like lists of like, hey, avoid these things, lean into these things. And in its section on prayer, it gives the Lord's prayer. And then it says, pray this three times a day. That was for the early church, what their prayer life looked like, was praying through, meditating on, and yes, rephrasing. Don't hear it as just 
recitation, the Lord's Prayer. And so coming out of the past, you know, 53 weeks, here we are a year and a week into the digital thing, everything that we've been going through over the past year, the levels of COVID and racial injustice. We've been through an election cycle and we've been through thing after thing that has been pressing us. And so often one of the first things to get crushed is our prayer life. It would invite us to receive this pattern of Jesus, me with you, of us leaning into praying the Lord's prayer daily. And some of you, you hear the Didache the three times, and you're like, that's where I'm going to start. I just, let's hold <laughs> slower horses. Let's just, if we're not doing it one time a day, let's just start with once a day, praying through the Lord's Prayer. Allowing this to be not perfectly, but a habitual way that we breathe deep of our communion with the Father. We exhale these petitions as given to us by Jesus and uniting us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So I want to invite us to this practice. What you're going to find is the Lord's prayer is graciously short. You can do it in the shower. You can do it while you're waiting for coffee. You can do it with kids crawling on you. And I have, you can do it between Zoom meetings. You can do it before the dinner, uh, the dinner table. You can do it before bread. It's just uh, before bread, before dinner. You can do it in the hundreds of times that you wash your hands. The amount of time that you're supposed to be washing your hands to stay you know, safe and clean is literally as long as it takes to go through the Lord's prayer. So you could literally be praying the Lord's Prayer a hundred times a day, depending on how much you're getting in and out of your house. But it's graciously short, but the Lord's Prayer is also graciously robust. I have found over my own experience with the Lord's Prayer, there have been times where I have just been in calm meditation, just simply reflecting on our Father and just meditating on this, this, this calming presence of meditating on what it means to be the beloved child of God. There's been other times where as I look out into the world that I've been led to the Lord's prayer with energetic intercession. May your kingdom come as I look out at the brokenness in this world. There have been times of tearful surrender as I'm releasing my wills to God's will. And times of joyful worship at hallowed be your name. And even tense wrestle of receiving and, and, and giving myself to forgiving others in the midst of knowing how much God has forgiven me. It's so robust. So it's short, but it's robust. It's communal. Do you notice that it's nothing but plural pronouns? We, our, us, through all, out of it. And so when you pray the Lord's prayer, there is some sense that if we get a whole community collective doing this on a regular basis, is that at whatever point you pray it during the day, you are entering into a prayer that we as collective are all having with one another and for one another. Even more than that, as... um. John Onwuchekwa points out in his own book, there has been no phrase repeated more throughout human history than the Lord's Prayer. And when we enter into praying the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis, we not just enter into the, our collective community, but the global and historic church. We are praying with brothers and sisters around the world and brothers and sisters throughout time and in time to come. This is a prayer that it just, it's so communal and deeply personal as we see within Jesus in Gethsemane, personalizing it to his own moment. And it's conversational. The Lord's prayer is when we join in with Jesus's pattern of prayer. And as I would like to imagine what he's currently praying over me and over you, over us. And so in the week ahead, Find something that would work for you, whether this is you, you know, copying and printing it out or, or writing it up in your own words and putting that somewhere in your bathroom, somewhere that you would see on a regular basis, you know, in your mirror as you're getting ready in the morning. 
If you're the sort of person who journals to, to journal out the Lord's prayer in your own language on a, on a weekly even basis or a daily basis. For some of you that memorizing, getting something within your mind so that you may pull from it on a regular basis, listening to it, you know, you got Bible apps plenty that will just read to you the Lord's prayer that you can just have that play in the morning as you're getting ready in the shower or singing it with the countless versions of the Lord's prayer that have been set to music. For some of us that are like ADHD, like me, and we're jumping all over from thing to thing, and it's easy for us to forget things that we may need to set a timer at some point in the day that Lord's Prayer reminds me, pulls me out of my rush of things, and, and I center myself back within this, the unfolding story of God. Or even some of us with as much as we look at our phones, that just having it as your phone wallpaper <laughs> may be enough that you see it regularly enough that you begin to pray it more often. See, my hope is that when we as individuals or, or to expand this, when we as discipleship groups or as we as a community that we're having conversations with one another and we find ourselves in a Gethsemane, a pressing moment, that the norm for our community would be that one of us would look at the other and just say, hey, why don't we pray the Lord's prayer right now? Can we pray, can we pray for you? Father in heaven, hallowed be, and we just pray for one another. Maybe stopping and meditating on and, and rephrasing a particularly pertinent phrase of God, would you help them to forgive what's been done against them? God, would you help them, God, to see what it means to follow and to lean into your will in the midst of this moment, this tension of maybe relational frustration that they're having with their spouse or their roommate? Oh God, in the midst of this, this sickness that they now have, this cancer diagnosis, God, we pray for your kingdom to come for earth as it is in heaven, that you would bring healing for them in this moment. God, as they're feeling distant from you in the midst of this sin, that you would forgive them, help them to live into that forgiveness. God, would you lead them in the coming weeks, not into temptation? Would you, what would you do that would bring, this is my hope for our community. Over this past week, I was checking in with someone who's a part of collective, um, isn't as isn't a, a member of Collective, but someone that's been a part of Collective for the past few years and just checking in and seeing how he's been doing. And I was talking with him just of how this year has been for him, kind of reflecting on the fact that it's been a year. And he was just kind of processing through how what he had noticed over the, past, the first few months of lockdown and everything kind of coming together is he just, he looked and he just said, man, I just, I just saw myself in some sense, I don't know if this is exactly his words, but like dozing up, falling asleep kind of getting into this sleepwalking stage of either kind of head down into his work. And then when that became overwhelming, that, that substances would be a way of just kind of like, just the comfort zone moving in, the, the absence of control and fear of what's going on out there in the world and the brokenness of it is either just head down into work and just kind of tuning out. And then even when that didn't work, substances. And he said there was a turning point in those first few months where he just leaned back into a practice he had had before of praying the Lord's prayer daily. And he was just kind of just like celebrating the fact that the Lord's prayer had become this anchor point for him. And here's the thing, as I talk with him, his prayer, the Lord's prayer, didn't remove any stressors, didn't remove anything that he knows of. I mean, God answers our prayers all the times in ways that we don't necessarily see, but there wasn't any, any direct, you know, explosive kind of things, just kind of the, you know, it's, it's been 2020. Going through all the same situations that many of us had, work has been difficult, at certain points looking like the business is gonna shut down and this moment bringing out all the most emotional insecurity and unhealth and within coworkers and teams. He's going through all of that. And he just said, it doesn't remove any of the stressors, but it felt like it kept him awake to the kingdom at work within this year. 
And so as we kind of, you know, in some way reel from and move back into, okay, what are we going to do? Here we are a year later, back in the Garden of Gethsemane again. I think the invitation is wherever you've been at, whether you've been praying faithfully throughout this year or you're suffocating or you're sick, wherever you're at on the scale, I think that Jesus would invite us like he invited the disciples there. Come watch and pray with me to join into that conversation, to rouse ourselves from our sleepy state and to join into the conversation that he's having about us for us. Because like Jesus said, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And prayer is how we unify those two things. It was Jesus's unified spirit and flesh that led him to faithfulness all the way through his cross into his resurrection. And prayer is how we can continue now to enthrone him, to be faithful to him as our enthroned king in our lives and out into the world today.